and I look across where the, the creek runs. On the other hill, there's a deer that I, that I was in there to shoot. I just I called him the mess. He was a mess of antlers. There's just points everywhere. I think he had 22 scorable points. I look across, and there he stands with a doe about a half a mile from me. And uh, the deer were coming by, but not. I had my eye on one deer in particular, and that was him. And I knew I had bumped him off, so I didn't really think that I was going to get a crack at him. There's hardly any breeze. I needed a south breeze. There's hardly any breeze. I'm starting to get hot. So by this time, I have, I'm sitting in a short sleeve shirt, no gloves on, no face mask on, baseball cap, and I got white and purple socks sitting on my footrest of my stand because my feet are so hot. And it was about 1.45 in the afternoon. I had a doe come by and I'm kind of dozing in and out. And I'm like, oh boy, there's a doe. And she's right in front of me. So I sit really still and I slide my feet back. Mm -hmm. So I don't have these big white purple feet sticking out there. And uh, I look behind her. I kid you not, the mess is right behind her. Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast, episode number 241. Sean Asada, buying the American deer hunter's dream on a shoestring budget. Support for the Big Buck Registry and the Deer Hunt Podcast comes from Hunter's Blend Coffee. Awaken your hunt with coffee purchased directly from farmers around the world, creating jobs and alleviating poverty. Hunter's Blend Coffee, we're hunters too. Polar Works Coolers and the Chill Zone, specializing in the most durable, reliable thermal cups and coolers. Keep your drinks hot or cold in any element. Covert scouting cameras, remote cameras for hunting, wildlife, and security. Morse's Sporting Goods, a full line of sporting goods without the sales tax. And Big Buck Merch. You can get cool, high-quality Big Buck t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and hoodies. And show support for this podcast by visiting www.bigbuckregistry.com forward slash M-E-R-C-H. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. This is Bill Vale from PressureDeerPro.com, and you're listening to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. Hello, this is Cuz Strickland with Mossy Oak, and you're about to listen to the podcast that I listen to 16 and a half hours nonstop. The Big Buck Registry is the best out there. This is Johnny from Rockstar Led Outdoors. You're about to push play on my favorite podcast, The Big Buck Registry. Hello, ladies and gentlemen and fellow predators. My name is Jay, and thank you for tuning in to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. For Dusty Phillips and Jim Keller and the entire staff here at the Big Buck Registry, welcome to this week's show. There are a couple things I'd like you to do for us if you could. If you would, please check us out on iTunes, subscribe, and leave us a review. With your help, we're going to try and push this show up the iTunes charts. I know we have a lot of listeners out there, and I need you to take some action. I need you to leave a review and subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe, that'll give you access and notification each and every week that a new show is released. You can also access this show in its entirety on YouTube, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Google Play. It's all right there for you to access on demand at your fingertips. 
Regarding the harness program, we have an ample supply of harnesses to give away from our volunteer donors. If you're in need of a full body harness, please send an email to j at bigbuckregistry.com. If the American dream is to own your own house, then the American hunter's dream is to own your own piece of hunting real estate. But to achieve that dream, we are often faced with the burden of financing, credit, and income, especially for working the 9-to-5 job and living paycheck to paycheck. According to Sean Asada, despite these perceived challenges, Sean says you can do it. He did it, and he didn't have two nickels to rub together. He started with a 10-acre piece, then another 13 acres, sold those, then bought 80 acres, sold that land, and then bought 280 acres all for himself to hunt. Sean explains how he devised his plan to own his own hunting land without breaking his blue-collar budget. We'll turn to our entire interview with Sean Asada in just one moment, but before we do, let's turn to Jim Keller for the Deer News. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. In our first story this week, Burmese python devours white-tailed deer that weighed more than the python itself in Florida. This story is from the WFTS ABC News website and was reported by Kelly Basil. Wildlife biologists with the Conservancy of Southwest Florida shared a shocking python find in Collier Seminole State Forest on Thursday. An invasive Burmese python's eyes were a little bigger than its stomach when it decided to devour a white-tailed deer fawn. Officials say pythons have been known to kill and ingest large prey, and this was a record-breaking meal. Officials stumbled upon the python with the massive prey inside. The biologist removed the python out of the wild into an open area, and the python was stressed so it pushed the deer out of its mouth. Biologists believe it is the largest python-to-prey ratio ever documented. The python was 31.5 pounds, and the deer was 35 pounds, 111% of the python's mass. The findings will be published in the March 2018 issue of the Herpetological Review. The python is an invasive species and biologists are focused on the impact the python is having across the food chain. Since 2013, the Conservancy and its research partners have been conducting research to document the invasive Burmese python's biology and behavior in Collier County, including the tracking, removal, and necropsy of captured pythons. Five hot locations to find more shed antlers. This story is from the Deer and Deer Hunting website and was reported by Mark Kayser. To find more shed whitetail antlers, you need to look in antler hot locations where deer will frequent or use going from one spot to another. Here are five top areas to snoop for more bone in your backpack. Bedding and south-facing slopes. Whitetails may spend more than 50% of their winter months bedded to conserve precious calories. That means they are likely to shed their antlers while bedded. Scour favored bedding sites in thick woodlots, willow jungles, and even cattails. Keep in mind deer may shuffle bedding sites to take advantage of self-facing terrain for warmth. Feeding areas. When winter deer aren't bedded, they are feeding. Food plots nearby agricultural fields and favored browse areas should top your list of places to search. If you believe that there is any mast, such as acorns left from fall, walk those areas as well. On a large agricultural field, be sure to grid the area so you don't miss any antlers hiding in the stalk. Trails connect bedding and feeding areas. Walk all heavily used trails that go between these zones. Look for trails that are now snow or mud packed. Start at either a feeding or bedding area and backtrack. If you see spur trails, follow those as well since whitetails alter daily travel routes depending on wind and paranoia. Fences. Fences crisscross whitetail country causing deer to jump them daily. This jar to the body can often dislodge antlers ready to drop. 
follow trails to and from fences, and then walk fence lines since deer don't always follow trails religiously. If you're lucky, you'll discover a matched set of horns resting alongside a shimmering five-wire fence. Rugged land. Like fences, rugged country causes deer to jump, bound, and leap. These various actions create a jarring impact that can also jettison antlers. Look for gullies, steep crossings, ditches, and even logs that deer may have to navigate. You literally can find a shed deer antler anywhere. They've been found by people driving down a road and spotted in the burrow ditch. Nevertheless, these five areas will definitely be top producers if you comb them diligently. Hunter, who was charged with homicide after mistaking woman for a deer, has case dismissed due to technicality. This story is from the Outdoor Hub website as a follow-up to a story we did previously. The case in which a New York hunter was charged with shooting and killing a woman after mistaking her for a deer has been dismissed. You may recall the case from the previous Outdoor Hub article in which Thomas Jalowski, 34, mistook Rosemary Bilquist for a deer while she was walking her dogs and shot her in a field behind her home. Jedlowski was originally charged with second-degree manslaughter and hunting after shooting hours. In the latest development of the case, WKBW reports, Chautauqua County Judge David Foley granted an appeal by the defense to dismiss the charges because the grand jury was never instructed on a lesser charge of criminally negligent homicide. Jamie Bilquist, husband of Rosemary Bilquist, isn't phased by the ruling and ultimately believes Jedlowski will be brought to justice. Several companies boycott the NRA while others continue business as usual. As I write this on Thursday, March 1st, an attempted boycott is underway for Apple and Amazon since they continue to carry the NRA TV channel on their video streaming services. In addition, FedEx has also come under fire for not severing its ties with the NRA. The NRA has come under fire in the aftermath of the horrific Florida school shooting in which 17 students lost their lives. The NRA has defended guns and gun rights and has done so on the NRA TV channel and elsewhere that weapons are not the problem. Other companies have ended discount programs for NRA members. They are as follows. Delta Airlines, United Airlines, rental car companies, Hertz, National, Enterprise, Alamo, and Avis, Wyndham Hotels, MetLife Insurance, Paramount RX, Starkey Hearing, and Chubb Insurance, First National Bank, which offered the NRA Visa card, Simply Safe Home Security, Symantec, which makes Norton Antivirus and LifeLock, True Car Automobile Sales Website and Wild Apricot Website Hosting, Allied Van Lines and North American Van Lines. Dick Sporting Goods is no longer selling assault rifles and will not sell guns to anyone under 21. Walmart won't sell guns and ammo to people under 21 and is no longer selling items that resemble assault rifles on their website. Companies who currently continue to associate with the NRA include Apple, Amazon, Google, FedEx, Vanessa Wines, Hotel Planner, Lockton, eHealth, Medical Concierge Network, Life Insurance Central, Manage Your ID, and Lifeline Screening. The NRA defended itself Saturday in a statement while condemning firms that have decided to cut off their relationship with the organization. The law-abiding members of the NRA had nothing at all to do with the failure of that school's security preparedness, the failure of America's mental health system, and the failure of the National Instant Check System, or the cruel failures of both federal and local law enforcement. Maybe what some of these companies need to do is put their money where their mouth is and offer their employees inexpensive and full benefit programs so if they suffer from a mental illness that might cause them to turn violent, they are able to get the help they need before they do something terrible. Maybe Walmart could stop selling the violent video games that I'm sure make them much more revenue 
than assault weapon toys so troubled kids won't be exposed to games that introduce them to the concept of shooting people with assault rifles. Please join me in my own boycott as I change my rental car to Dollar Rental Car in April and make it a point to avoid those companies no longer offering their business arrangements with the NRA. They are just grabbing publicity that will do nothing to address the real issue. That concludes this week's edition of the Big Buck Registry's Dear News. For links to the stories featured this week, please check our show notes at www.bigbuckregistry.com. If you have any ideas for future topics or have any questions about any of these topics, please email me at jim at bigbuckregistry.com. For the Big Buck Registry, this is Jim Keller with the Deer News. Well, thank you to Jim Keller for the Deer News. Without further ado, here is Sean Asada. Sean Asada, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. What's happening? Awesome day out, man. Beautiful weather. How are you? Watching snow melt, brother. It's just one of those beautiful things. Turkey season's around the corner and I can smell it. Yeah, I've got the itch to get out myself. Yeah. But there's also you know, the other aspect of this and where people are starting to think food plots and getting stuff set up in there. They're... No doubt. No doubt. And, you know, with, uh, with shed antlers dropping daily, I have an itch to get out and do some more of that, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm kind of coming off of my ice fishing shed hunting coyote hunting type thing not that i ever stopped coyote hunting of course but the the early spring way of life yeah absolutely i've i don't coyote hunt much but i would love to get more into it seeing them just uh drives me nuts it gives you an itch to get out there and be like i want to get him (laughs) right right yeah john we wanted to talk today a lot about buying a piece of property it's part of the american dream to own a house it's part of the american hunter's dream to own their own piece of property problem is buying property is expensive costs a lot of money to get in mortgages are at play a lot of times it's just the the wealthier folk that get to do this and play in this playground but everybody really wants their own piece of property right absolutely i mean if if you're a hunter and uh you think about it nearly 365 days a year like a lot of us do that's a dream and that's a uh, it's a viable dream it's a i mean really it could be a goal and it can be attained right and what I think, and we're going to get into your whole story in just a second, but I think it's fascinating that none of that mattered to you and that, that you found a way to get it done uh, with, with short money. And as, as we've discussed, you, you didn't have two nickels to rub together, but yeah. still, uh, and through real blue-collar jobs, you were still able to buy a piece of hunting property that you call your own. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Right. I mean, I, um, I didn't grow up with hardly anything at all. I, originally I'm from, uh, Northern Iowa. I was born in California, okay. but I don't, I don't remember any of that because okay. we moved to Iowa when I was very young, but then we moved to Northern Iowa and I grew up in the country. Um, I was a single, uh, single mom household and she worked her butt off. I had a couple of brothers and my mom provided a roof over her head and food. And other than that, we were left to, I mean, don't get me wrong, great relationship with my mother still to this day, but we were left to fend for ourselves. If we wanted something, we had to figure out a way to go and get it. And so as a kid, I naturally, as a kid, you don't, you're not in control of your thoughts as much as you are as an adult, but I just watch people out there on tractors and, you know, the neighbors with, let's say a loader moving stuff around. And I just could watch them all day. I mean, I'm talking little kid, kindergarten. Okay. I could just watch equipment all day. Gotcha. So was, was when you were a kid, was hunting like an aspect of life that you wanted to participate in or was, 
Did you have was, more to think about back back then? It was the outdoors. outdoors. I mean, okay. grant, granted, my time outdoors now is pretty much just hunting related, except for in the summer. Um, we have a we have a, a boat and we go out family boating, but um, outside of that, it's it was just the outdoors. I we, I grew up in the country. So you, I never said I was bored to my mom. I take that back. I learned to say I was never bored to my mom because it was either, well, clean or go outside. <laughs> and so I wouldn't say I was bored because I surely didn't want to clean. So I was, I'd go outside and, you know, I'd fish and we'd make forts and do whatever I could to be outside. It was just in me. I, okay. My neighbor hunted and that was just the seed and I was too young, but. I was just a seed to, that was planted that I just want to get out and hunt. And that's kind of how, where it developed. Okay. What, was there an influence in your life that, that got you into hunting other than watching your neighbor? And what's your earliest recollection of, of a hunt? My earliest recollection of a hunt was I wasn't even in kindergarten. I was probably four years old and parents were still married at the time. And my dad hit a buck with his car and just destroyed his car. Mm. And that thought was like, man, you can go out and like hunt these things. Like you can really go and shoot them and you can get one of these things and eat it. <laughs> yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. I want in on that. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's crazy. I mean, some kids are born with um, family members that hunt parents that hunt mm -hmm. and they don't, um, they don't really get it in their blood. Right. Right. And myself, I didn't really have too much hunt hunting directly influenced on me, but I wanted to do it anyway. Right. Yeah. And I can relate. I, my grandfather was a hunter, but he, he didn't hunt a ton when, when I got to know him, you know, he was a little older and wasn't nearly as active. He'd go out, but he it wasn't, he'd take me fishing a lot when I was a really young kid. That was his thing. Which, as you okay. can as you can envision, taking a introducing a kid to the outdoors, you take them fishing first, typically, and then yeah. you introduce a BB gun. And then you start to introduce some some hunting later when they can start to understand some of the, the other concepts. And uh, assuming that you can over overcome the the boredom aspect of what hunting could bring to a kid, yeah, right, yeah, I mean, or, or an adult, <laughs> or an adult for that matter. Yeah, you if you're not if you're not seeing game, uh, which is to a kid, that's that's well, that's what I'm here to do. But to an adult, there's many other aspects to that, whether it be just peace, pure peace and quiet, and re removed from daily life. Uh, to uh, actually, I need the adrenaline rush. So, uh, yeah. So there's right. a lot of different aspects to hunting. But my my dad wasn't much of a hunter, so we didn't go. But it was there was always I had a couple friends that always got to go, and I was they tell us the stories about how the how they get on their deer hunt. I was so envious of how I wasn't doing that. Like, so, you know, I begged my dad to take me, but I never got to that, that level that they seem to be able to actually kill a deer and, and, and hold the antlers and, and feel the fur and, and gut the deer. And I always wanted that, but my dad just wasn't a hunter and my grandpa nailed it. Right. Yeah. I wanted yep. a piece of that. Yeah. And that yeah, was early, early on. Right. Right. Yeah. I had friends that, that hunted and, um, you know, coming from, by the time I got, you know, in third, fourth grade, when my other friends were going out hunting, um, by that time, you know, uh, single parent household and my mom was working all the time and, uh, rightfully so, I mean, paying bills is number one. Mm -hmm. And 
I had friends that go hunting and I was just so jealous and I wanted to figure out a way to go and do it. Right. And finally, eventually that came along. Right. All right. So you going through life as a kid, you're kind of feeling this, this desire to get out and you get to your adulthood and you're faced with, okay, I can go hunting, but I, I really want to own a piece of property. Problem is I don't have any money to do it, but you figured it out. So t- tell us your story about how this whole concept of where you are today where you own a piece of property that you hunt and manage that you own it's yours you can do whatever you want with it where did you where did that story begin it it really starts off as a kid you know if you want something you have to figure out a way to get it and some people are and and this is awesome i don't downplay it one bit on what people can do with their lives sometimes people are born on third base in the major leagues and we can't do anything about it, you know, kind of like sitting at a poker table. Mm-hmm. So you're just, you work with the cards that you are dealt. So I just thought, you know what, I've got to, and, and granted this, uh, it, it wasn't so philosophical, but I've got to figure out a way to get this done with anything in life. And I, I remember filling out FAFSA information for college and college applications yep. and scholarship applications and trying to figure those things out. I was just in a household where if you wanted something, you had to figure out how to do it. And so that is even going through college, you know, at junior college, I wasn't, uh, eventually I did go to uh, a university, but I was not going to a university right off the bat. I saved money Mm -hmm. and I worked full time over the summer for a manufacturing plant. And the first year of college, I drove back and forth to a community college I took 16 credit hours, which is uh, not not too crazy. I think 12 is full officially full time, and those 16 credit hours I took on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Okay. And I had to drive 50 minutes to go to class, and so it just came down to work ethic. And I'd work from 6 a.m. to 4:30 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then work from 6 yeah 6:30 a.m. until noon on Saturdays. So that's, it was basically came down to a work ethic. I had the work ethic. I just had to figure it out. So growing up, anything you wanted in life typically wasn't to go to mom and dad said, mom, dad, buy me this, get me that. You had to work for it. You had to figure out a way to get it. And it wasn't coming financially from your, your parents or other relatives. That's right. I remember the very first car I bought, you know, my mom did help me out. There was $600 as a piece of junk. And, uh, I paid her back. I got a, I had a job landed before I turned 16 and that is how I, uh, you're exactly, you, okay. had, you just, I had to figure it out. All right. So you worked for it. You had to earn it. You had to find a solution to what your desires, the things you wanted in life. And it certainly wasn't going to be handed to you. You had to go get it. Yeah. Yep. All right. Exactly. All right. So when, does, so it started way back, obviously, and that you knew you're going to have to work for it, but still you had to figure out that I want my, a piece of my own hunting land, not just the house, not just a place to live, but a hunting property. And that to a lot of people, that's like a luxury item. You know, that's, well, that's disposable income. That's well beyond what most people would normally do. Mm-hmm. However, there is a priority where, okay, if you make that a priority in your life, that you institute it into your life. Yeah. When did that exactly. become your goal? It, it had been, um, so getting out, working full-time after I graduated and got a full-time job, I 
you know, we bought just a, a small, modest house, my wife and I, and, you know, below our means, uh, I'm always a guy about living below your means because okay. you got to save for a rainy day. You never know what the future holds. Right. So we just had a small, modest house. And when it comes to money, it's always one of two things. It's either an income problem or it's an outgo problem. Right. So if you've got the outgo problem handled, living below your means, pinching pennies, you're already working a full-time job, maybe your girlfriend, your wife's already working a full-time job, you've got, you possibly have an income problem. So, and, and we, we had good jobs. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, they weren't six figure jobs by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. It's just, we had nice, stable uh, jobs that we could count on. As long as we did a good job, we know our jobs would be there. Okay. So I decided, Hey, I need to make some more money if I'm going to have down payment for some land. Okay. And we're already saving every month. All right. You know, that old adage, pay yourself before you pay your bills, you know, put money in savings. Right. And then live off the rest. Right. And I want to illustrate here that, that maybe I'm wrong, but you're not a financial planner by trade. This is not your job. No, not at all. Okay. I'm just a tight wad and a, a figure outer. <laughs> okay. All right. Yet I'm hearing that these lessons that I would often hear from a financial planner. So you figured this out on your own because probably because of the way you grew up, right? Yeah, you're right. When, you know, when you're forced to do something, when you're, when you're backed into a corner, You've got to figure your way out. Well, you got two choices. You could sit there in that corner or you can figure out how to get out of that corner. Okay. All right. Right. All right. So you buy a modest house. You have average incomes. You have yep. two two incomes going in your household, living below your means. And this is your strategy uh, for your finances in your household. Yeah. Even to this day. Even to yep. this day. You live this. This is You live and breathe this lifestyle. This is what you do. And yeah. The jobs you have are, are not six-figure income jobs. It su- supplies your household what you need, yet still doesn't really sound like there's a lot of extra income to go no. to go buy your your dream land so you can have your hunting hunting area all to yourself. Right. right. No, there wasn't. So, I uh, I had to figure out some a way to bring in some more money. Okay. All right. So how'd you do that? Well, uh, you know, opportunity, you have to have your eye open for opportunity. It's kind of like buying a vehicle. I mean, it could be as simple as, say, a a Chevy Cavalier. You know, you don't see you don't see opportunity until you keep your eye open for it. And so you buy your Chevy Cavalier or you buy your S10 truck. Once you see them and you buy one, you see them all over the place. And and that's the way opportunity is as well. And so. I had an acquaintance that had a um, auto dealer's license, and okay. here in Iowa, that gives if you have an auto dealer's license, you get access to special auctions. Right. Okay. So what you're talking about is the reticular activator. Once you're aware of it, you see it everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. And so he had a dealer's license, and he bought wrecked vehicles, and so I asked him to find me a wrecked Toyota Tundra, and He's like, tell you what, here is the auctions I have access to. Um, we typically use online auctions. And here's my username. Here's my password. Just throw me a bone if you find one you like. Okay. So I found one I liked. And it was wrecked. And believe it or not, I was it, while it was in the body shop getting fixed, 
Um, he had access to a couple body shops that uh, worked at a pretty reasonable rate. So while I was in the body shop getting fixed, I saw this ad in the local newspaper, a guy looking for a Toyota Tundra. Mm. And I thought, hmm. So I ran to what I was going to have into this truck for money. And then I looked to see what the market had for Toyota Tundras out there. And I was like, hmm, I think I can make some money on this truck. So it came out of the body shop and I drove it for a few weeks. I called the guy. Hey, did you find a truck? No, still looking for one. As a matter of fact, I've got one. I'd consider selling it. So I sold it and made some money on it. And I thought, I want to do a couple more of these. Okay. And, All right. And that's, what I, and that's what I did. And so I, um, the guy that had the dealer's license, he helped me find a vehicle here and there that I, would, that I was looking for. And then I had a body shop that I'd pay the guy to fix them at a reasonable rate. And you got to be smart about it. Just like anything else, you want to know where the demand is. Mm -hmm. So I would, I bought vehicles that I would like to drive myself. And so I really, it's not like I even bought two dozen of these things, you know, and turned them over and sold them. It was just, I bought a few of them and made a few thousand bucks. Well, that few thousand bucks went straight to savings Yeah, and that helped. And then he got, um, he got a job opportunity because he had um, this dealer's license on the side with another guy. So he had a job opportunity. He took the job out of state. I no, no longer had access to those auctions, but I still needed some extra money. In the meantime, we're saving money every month. Got some few thousand bucks we've put into savings from the vehicles. And I decided, well, I need to get a part-time job. So I went and sold appliances, full commission, after work, and on the weekends. And sometimes... It was famine. I'd come home. I wouldn't sell a thing. Right. Then other times it was feast. Right. And right. all that money went straight to savings. Okay. And it was still just a few thousand bucks. Gotcha. And what we did with that money was I just Googled, you know, Iowa land for sale because that's where I live. I live in Iowa. Iowa land for sale. And looked through a few websites and decided, my wife and I decided, it was on a weekend. It was Saturday, Sunday. We're going to drive down here. We're going to look at a couple properties. And they were small. I mean, the, the properties for sale were, you know, nine to 20 acres. And so we drove down there, had a few thousand in savings. Granted, we drove down there just looking. And by the time we left, we had an offer on a piece of property. Okay. And that is how the first one got bought. So where are you at in, in that process where you, okay, so you've worked the second job all that money went to save for down payment. So did you have a, and you found a piece of property you wanted, you made an offer, Yeah. but did you have enough to pay for the whole thing in cash or is, was there some financing that needed to be put into play? Yep. Financing into play. I mean, it, even to this, to this day for me, it, it's still financing comes into play. If, if you have credit mm -hmm. and you have savings, just even a modest savings and you're living below your means, the bank will give a guy more money than a guy should take. And so the, the bank getting financing was easy because the bank, you know, they want to finance you to the hill. Yeah. They want to get, give you everything they can give you, you know, to a certain point because they want interest on their money. Mm -hmm. So it, it was financing. I don't remember what, what we put down for percentage. I want to say we only put down 25% probably. Okay. All right. Which, if compared to buying a house, that's a lot of money. 
You know, that, that's, it a, is. that's a large percentage. You can get no money down on if you have a house, but 25% on a piece of property might not be so easy. What are we talking about in dollar figures for your first one? Oh, I think the first one was less than $50,000. Okay. So your piece. So, you know, we, we were only talking, what, we were only talking maybe $15,000 we put down. Okay. All right. So you had a $50,000 piece of property. How many acres were you looking at? Yeah, it, it was small. It was, wasn't even 10 acres. 10 acres, $50,000. And you had to come up with $15,000 of your own money. Yep. Yeah. I want to say the property itself was like $45,000. And when you think about that, if you do the math, you're like, oh my gosh, it's $5,000 an acre. But this was a different area. This was an area that was getting developed into vacation homes and a private lake. Mm. And um, right now in Iowa, it's not unheard of to pay $5,000 for recreational land. At that time, it was unheard of, but this was a little different animal just because it wasn't strictly recreational ground. Okay. And at that point, were you thinking, this is going to be my deer hunting spot, this 10 acres? I was. You were? Yeah, this is going to be a deer hunt spot. We'll build a cabin here. We got the private lakes. We'll do some fishing. It still hadn't grown into this. I'm going to have a couple hundred acres of deer hunting ground to myself. The dream had still not grown that big yet. It's, it's amazing what we are capable of as humans that we don't even know we're capable of. Right. So 10 acres is not that much property. No. Right? That's a, that's no, a, it's not. The it, deer hunting at the time was to, awesome. For deer hunting, that's a very small parcel, right? It is. Yep. At the time that we first bought it, and granted it got developed um, and the deer hunting has since taken a hit. It's still not bad because there's so much timber in the area. But at the time, I want to say the first couple of years that I had it, um, I saw a 180 on there twice. Neighbor missed a 200 just a few hundred yards away. I mean, it was really good deer hunting. Okay. So you were, you were able to figure out, did, did you know it was a good deer hunting spot before you engaged or were you just t- taking a chance? I knew it was pretty good. Okay. I, if you can find enough timber in Iowa, it doesn't mean that it's going to be lights out deer hunting. But it does mean that you're going to see deer. Okay. Okay. So you're looking at timber and you're looking at, and it's, again, 10 acres is for deer hunting, for land. That's a small parcel. You're looking yep. for a house to be on, you know, five, three to five acres is pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Maybe Right. It, it, it was really small. Right. And it, it, I just knew it, if you want to, and I've hunted some small spots. Mm-hmm. I used to do an urban hunt. But, you know, I've hunted half-acre lots. Right, right. And right. so you it, you can hunt small areas. It, it, was, just, it was just a matter of at, at least I will have a place I can hunt if I need one. Right. And it's mine. Yep. And, and I, I guess that's where I wanted to point out here. That's why I was driving home the whole concept that it, this is a small piece. You don't need a big piece. No, hunt. if your goal is just you want a place to hunt where you don't have to have permission, gonna go hunt you don't have to worry about landowner and this and that and the other thing it doesn't take a big area if you want to shoot giant bucks and that's all you're giving yourself a choice to do then you're going to have to look at it a little differently um at at some point right right so backing up just to go through this process is that you worked an extra job part-time to come up with $15,000 to put a down payment on a piece of property that you're going to finance. Yep. So that you could have your own deer hunting 
land. What was, how long did it take you based off your, the income that you had in your household, plus your extra part-time job that was your, that was how you're going to earn money for the down payment for a deer hunting spot. How long did it take you to, to accumulate your 25% down? Oh, for that 15,000, gosh, we made so little at the time. It probably, it seriously probably took us like two years just to save that. Okay. All right. And that's not very much money. I mean, $15,000, don't get me wrong. I, I, I don't even spend a hundred dollars without thinking about it long and hard. Right. Right. But, um, it did. It probably took us that long just to save fifteen thousand dollars. Okay, but you had you set yourself. You set a goal. That was your goal fifteen thousand dollars at that time. Was that kind of? I need fifteen thousand dollars. I remember when we first got married, our goal was just to save ten thousand. And I mean, literally, just to have ten thousand in savings. That was our goal, and we hit that goal, and we just kept saving and saving. And so it was never a written goal of okay, when we have. 25,000 in savings. We're going to go find a piece of property that we both can agree on. My wife doesn't even hunt to this day. She still doesn't hunt. Okay. It was, um, property to me has always been a smart purchase, uh, an investment that I just so happens that I can hunt. Right. It's it to this day. It's still that way to me. Okay. So this was done on a part-time job out outside of your normal everyday income. That was not a six-figure income to begin with. Living below your means now, the but you were still working. You, you got a initiation into buying and selling Toyota Tundra so that you could resell, and there must have been some cash generated from that as well. Yep, right. yep, exactly. Yeah. So it was we're saving money just with our full-time jobs because we're living below our means. Okay, but we need to speed this process up gotcha. because of the whole. If you don't have enough money, it's an income or it's an outgo problem. Gotcha. Well, in our, in our case, it was an income problem. So I need to get some more income. So you had to be hyper aware of a few things. Number one, you had to be hyper aware of what you were earning and had to be hyper aware of what was going out and what you needed to live for your family. Yep. Right. And that all starts with a budget. You don't even have to be hyper aware. You could do that with simple, well, simple I say, math. I say hyper aware because you, it, yes, it's su- simple math, but some people just don't even think about that. So you have to be aware of how much is coming in, how much you need each month to go out in order to just pay your bills. And then you have to bring it back. Like you have to, like, okay, I have to live below this in order to make this work. And I'm going to need to hyper generate some additional income because I've got this piece set over here. And in order to achieve my goals of being able to buy property, I need to accelerate that process. I need need to find extra income above and beyond what I currently have. I'm going to do that, in your case, by buying and selling Toyota Tundras, buying them cheaper and selling them for more, and doing some kind of a second job to save my down payment money for my first piece of property. Yeah, What, what you think about, you will become. And so I constantly thought about Really, what I constantly thought about is getting ahead, quote unquote, so I could somehow find my own little slice of hunting property. And so that's constantly what I what I thought about perusing online. You know, I, I'm positive you have hundreds, if not thousands of listeners out there that hop online just to look at properties, just to dream. And that is awesome. Right. That's where it all starts. Right. So you get your first piece of property through a financial plan of your own, not, not as a financial advisor set you out or set forth for you, just your own mm-hmm. plan. 
what did you, yep. what, what was next? Okay. You, you, you got the money, you get the loan. You, what was the loan process like? It's pretty simple. I mean, if, if you bought a vehicle on a loan or you bought a house on a loan, you know, granted real estate, the closing is quite a bit more compl- a lot more complicated than buying a consumer item, but you go to the bank and that's probably what I recommend first is you look at what you have in savings, you look at how long it's going to take you to get there, what you need in savings, and then you get pre-approved by a bank. And you chances are if you are fanatical about your finances, you already know what you can afford by using a simple calculation of how much money is it going to take down and then hopping online or downloading an app of a mortgage calculator and putting in your interest, putting in your amortization and figure out how much does it cost you a month. How much does it cost on like, uh, so you had $15,000 down on a $50,000 piece of land. What was your monthly payment that you had to worry about after that? I don't even remember. I want to say it was around 400 bucks a month at the time. And, um, it was, you know, our lives changed so much. I want to say that it was on a balloon. It was like a five-year balloon. So you can usually get lower interest rates when you do something like that. And people always think about, well, what am I going to do in five years if interest rates take off? And that's a valid question to ask. I haven't worried about it because my life has changed so dramatically in the last 10 years same change so dramatically in the last five years. I don't typically worry about it too much. I'm just like, okay, what's my interest rate going to be locked in for three years or five years? Okay. And I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm just saying that's what I've done. Okay. So you were, you weren't too worried about the interest rate or the terms that you were receiving. Yeah, I was interested. Yeah. I mean, I was, a, you know, cause the monthly, the bottom line monthly, that's what I, that's what I cared about. You know, I just wanted to make sure that my interest rate was going to be locked in for at least three years. Okay. Because our lives, you know, with uh, standard of living and we get raises and, you know, hopefully if you've got kids, your daycare payments are going to go out the window once they go to school. And so usually, usually dispensable income goes up as long as we don't change our standard of living or get into further debt. Okay. All right. So you're, the, the, you have a, a term of a balloon, which I believe means that you're going to need to pay that off at some point down the road. Um, a balloon means that they're going to call for the balance. Yeah. Usually what a bank considers, yes, that is, um, if, if you're getting down to the nuts and bolts, that's exactly right. Usually the way a bank looks at it is they're going to refinance it with me in five years. Right. Right. All right. So they're, they're looking to probably recast that at some point with yep. you down the road. So, right. But the point is that you, you, you've made this purchase. You have terms that work within your household budget and you're, you're now the proud owner of a, a slice of Hunter's heaven, right? Yep. You now are part of the Hunter's American dream where you own a property that you can call and maintain and manage yourself as you wish. Yeah. You know, run cameras on it, throw out some clover seed, rake it in with your old garden rake. That's exactly what I did. All right. So what, was that the plan? Was that, okay, so hey, if we bought the, bought the property, then what? What's your plan right, th- right then and there? My plan was to hunt it and kill a couple deer. And then my buddy of mine, he ended up buying the neighboring one over. And that was just a few acres also. And shortly after he closed on his, him and I went to the Boundary Waters fishing. And I remember we're paddling 
and paddling and paddling. Seems like for eons, if you've ever um, paddled a canoe across, you know, a 10,000 acre lake. But I'm like, hey, dude, what are we going to do next? And he's like, I don't know, buy some more. <laughs> <laughs> and I just kind of laughed at the time. But um, and, and we him and I still don't own land together to this day. But it was I didn't have a solid plan. All I knew at the time is I'm going to keep saving. I'm going to make this property better. And I'm going to keep my eye open for things that come along. Okay. And that's what, and that's what happened. All right. So you're, you're not done yet. You're like, okay, this one's cool. I'm using it. I'm, it's, I'm working out the, the plan. Did you have a, a management plan for that 10 acres where you're going to plant food plots and, and hunt it? Or were you still in development mode? Uh, no, I was still a mudslinger. Okay. Meaning I'm just going to go hunt. Okay. I got, right. I got my place. I can go hunt. I can tell you that today I am a much different hunter than I was, than I was at the time. Okay. All right. So Part of your story with the Toyota Tundra, that reminds me of my friend AJ. And I want to just go off on a quick tangent here. My friend AJ owns a really nice tuna fishing vessel. I mean, it's a yacht, right? Awesome. I already like AJ. AJ's great. Love AJ. So do I. And <laughs> he, he he's he's a good tuna fisherman, and he can, but he takes it out on other trips. But to him, that boat was part of his life, and from day one, it was going to be a part of his life. Except he didn't have the means. Very much like you, didn't make a ton of money. Bartended a lot. Um, very blue collar worker. But here's what AJ did. AJ, who had a mechanical background, he understood how cars worked and boats worked and boat motors and all that kind of stuff. He was familiar with it. He would buy junks on the side of the road, fix them up and resell them for profit. And each time he did, he took that profit and bought a bigger junker and continued to do that. I mean, he'd even buy trailers that nobody wanted or take trailers that nobody wanted, buy uh, boats. And each one, each time he got it to a point where he was making more and actually was able to buy a boat that he kind of liked. And that became mm-hmm. his fishing boat. It wasn't his ideal fishing boat, but it was a boat. And, but he continued to buy and sell boats on the side of the road because each time he had more and more cash. And his mo- over the last, I think it's four years, five years, he's gone from um, an entry-level, what I would con- consider a striper boat fishing vessel, to an entry-level yacht that he can now use for tuna fishing, go deep overnights. And then even traded that one in. He sold that one and made a profit on that, and went to an even bigger boat. So now he's he's like he's living the the wicked tuna lifestyle on one of the uh, uh, incredibly nice boat that he understands and maintains, double twin turbo diesel engines, and he can go deep and stay overnight. And has beautiful cabins and high perches, and it is a as nice as any tuna fishing vessel that you would find on wicked tuna except that you have to understand how he got there. It started with him basically just buying a, a rowboat on the side of the road. Yeah. Very similar to your story. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's incredible. I mean, I, I love hearing stories like that. It's just, it's amazing what, um, you know, what luck is, is, uh, is a lot different than, than some people. There is, there is such thing as luck, but his came from hard work. Right. Came from being smart, working hard, looking for opportunity, capitalizing on opportunity for profit with a goal in mind. Like someday I want that huge tuna boat, but I can't do it on the income I have. However, I can buy and I can take a little bit of my money, invest in a little bit of a boat and whatever I make from that, keep going and going and going. Yeah. Opportunity 
um, comes dressed in overalls and looks a lot like work. That's right. That's right. So back to your story, you did not stop at 10 acres. It sounded like that, that conversation you had with your neighbor in the boat kind of got your wheels turning. Like, well, maybe I don't want to stop. Where did you go from there? The, well, then the recession happened and the recession was felt all over the place. Fortunately, my wife and I still kept our jobs and um, the neighboring property ended up going back to the bank. Mm. And that was a little bit bigger. That was like 13 point some acres. And so I talked to my wife about it and hemmed and hawed for a couple days. And I, I called the bank and went back and forth with the bank and made an offer. And, you know, sometimes banks just give things away. They didn't in this case. Um, sometimes they hang on to them. And I was able to, my wife and I were able to buy the neighboring piece at quite a bit less than what was paid for it just a couple of years prior. That was partially due to two things. One, it was bank owned and two, the recession happened. Gotcha. Okay. So you're building onto your acreage at this point. You're buying a neighbor and neighboring property through opportunity and the timing. Timing was intricate here. Yeah. Timing is, is always an intricate thing. And you know, when, when you buy something and you make it better, whether it be car, vehicle, boat, piece of land, I don't even look at it as, you know, or even a dilapidated house. One doesn't go into it just to flip it and screw somebody out of money. Mm -hmm. What you're really doing is you're providing a better product and you're reducing risk for the next person. If you can get awesome deer pictures on it, if you can put food plot on it and show the thing works, if you can buy a junky trailer or junky boat and make it a lot better, that elbow grease and that sweat equity, you didn't screw anybody out of anything. What you did is you eliminated risk for the next person and you created a better product for them so they didn't have to do that work themselves. Gotcha. Okay. And so that's what, that um, we ended up keeping those um, pieces of property for a few years and don't own them anymore. Um, the first one did not make any money on it. Be totally honest with you, didn't make any money. Okay. On it. I don't really think I lost any money though either. I mean, I learned a ton about land ownership and forest reserve and taxes and putting in food plots with sweat equity and trenching in my own electric, you know, renting a trencher and pulling it behind my truck and going down there on Easter day to go trench in my own electrical service and, you know, hand cutting, getting up to tree roots and hand cutting my way through tree roots and buying my own bulk electric roll of electric wire and laying it back in there and burying it, all that good stuff. Wow. <laughs> so you're, 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 you're in, you have to be all in at this point. You're not, you don't, you can't hire somebody to do it. You, you, you're, you're your own construction guy at this point. Yeah, I don't have the, I didn't have the money to hire it done. Right. So I wanted a spot where we could take a camper, and in order to have us for have a spot to take a camper, I didn't want to run it off a generator. So I decided, well, I'm gonna have to trench it in. So I went to the electrical warehouse and bought this super long roll of electrical wire after consulting with a couple electricians on what I needed for gauge wire, mm -hmm. and rented a trencher from company here in town, went down there and took care of it. Gotcha. Fascinating. And then you sold the property. So you, you kind of broke even on the first property. 
Mm-hmm. And yep, and I sold it to a friend. Okay. Lives down there with his family to this day. Been down there to visit him. Okay. Beautiful, beautiful house and house and timber. Okay. So that was a learning experience. And then the the neighboring property, the the was it, 13 acres or so. Mm-hmm. What did you do with that one? Uh, put a food plot on it, hunted it some more and sold that one and made a little bit of money on that one. I mean, I, I don't even think I'm positive. We didn't even make 10 grand on that, Okay, right. but still made money. And in the meantime, you know, we have a mortgage payment on it. So we're paying down the principal and therefore upping our equity. Right. So what, what a lot of people think about land is, Oh, it's risky. Well, there is volatile land, you know, like development land. If you want to be a giant player and make stacks of money and take huge risks, there's development land and you can do that. I, that is not my forte and I don't feel comfortable doing that. But to me, land, farmland, um, modest recreational land, I don't look at it as risky at all. It's perceived as being risky. It's a commitment, but the risk doesn't bother me at all. Okay. It seems unrisky to me only because if you had to sell it in a pinch, you could most likely sell it for pretty much what you got for it or what, how, pretty much what you paid for it. Yep. The market determines value. Right. You know, when, when stuff hits the market and you see an exorbitant price on it, if that price comes down or it gets sold maybe a couple months later and you can look on your assessor side or go to your co- county courthouse and see what it sold for, you know, nobody determines the the market individually it is the market determines the market right and and certainly the market you know you you talked about recession earlier when you bought that first piece of or the second piece of property that was predicated off off of a housing bubble that burst so that at that point and housing can burst like anything you know there's uh, there are bubbles of all sorts there was the the dot-com burst there was the the real estate burst and there's so it's not yeah, all commodities burst. Commodities yeah. burst is it's never completely safe, but certainly in general, property values increase annually, yeah. year over yeah, year. Yeah, about five to six percent a 6%. year. What what I consider land, recreational and farmland, is it's a non-liquid savings account. Your money's right. there. Right. You're paying it down. It didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's just not as liquid as sitting in a bank. Right. Definitely not liquid. Um, definitely, I don't know, I'm not a financial advisor or anything like that. I don't play one on TV, but certainly probably there are other more risky, more aggressive investments that you could make and maybe make more money. But in general, real estate is safe. And I've certainly seen evidence that people who are the super wealthy actually go and buy land to, as a place to park their, their earnings as a safe net where they don't feel like, okay, I put that over there. Uh, I put my money over there and it won't decrease in value, most likely increase in value. And, but I don't feel like I have, I'm not at risk. I'm not at risk if I put my money over there. Absolutely. There's a very famous quote out there that goes, um, don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective. I like yeah, that. Cause it's going to go up. I mean, it's, it's going to go up okay. as long as the human population keeps going up. It's going to go up. So, 08, 09, that was pro- approximately when the recession was. You bought that second piece of property through the recession. Yep. Then you sold them. What What year did you sell them? I don't remember exactly what year. I want to say it was about 2011. Okay. Because I shot my first, let's just say, um, and it's it's all a matter of perspective. 
but I shot my first big deer and I believe it was 2010 and it was on that land. Okay. So I know I still owned it then. So we'd probably have to say 2011. Okay. Was did that have, have a correlation to you being your own land manager and doing the things that you wanted to do to grow bigger deer there? Because you could a keep other people off and b you could hunt and and take the deer that you wanted and let the other ones grow. The answer to that one is no. Okay. <laughs> it was luck, pure luck. Okay, yeah, honest yeah. answer. It was, just, it, like was, it was just a good area. It was a good area. Right. I mean, if a guy still wants to go shoot a hundred and forty inch deer, even though there's a lot of pressure in that area, I could go and do it. Anybody could. Good. It is not even me. A guy could go and do it. Gotcha. All right. And you have to ask the question because your mind kind of said, well, did you have something to do with it, owning your own property? And the answer is, in your case, no. It was just pure luck. So that yep. it's, it's important, I think, to illustrate that even though you own your, your own piece of property, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to grow bigger deer there, but you happen to, to take one that you think had really not a whole lot to do with it, which is important to understand. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, all right. So- you sell the second piece of property. You've sold the first piece of property. Now you don't own any land at that time, or at least I don't, I don't know if you did. You didn't say you bought any, but so no, you no longer have your own piece of property to hunt. What, what happens after that? Do you end up buying more land? Uh, at that time, I still, to this day, I still hunt a lot on permission. Okay. I still hunted on permission then. I, I'm positive I still hunted public ground then. So at that time, no, did not own any quote unquote hunting land. Okay. I got into the urban hunt where I live to kind of feed that need of um, continuing to have a place to hunt and more places to hunt. Um, we, my wife and I wanted to build a house. The recession hadn't quite come back yet. Mm-hmm. So immediately after that, um, now keep in mind, this whole time, I'll say it one last time, this whole time we're still saving money, living below our means. All right. So, and we still were paying down the principal on that land. So we're saving money, paying down the principal, sell it. Savings is growing because we're still saving. You know, we sell it, we have more equity in it, more Mm -hmm. money goes back into savings after selling it, pay a little bit of capital gains. And, um, now find a, you had, so you had some money that came from the sale of the land. In other words, you had your equity that you, by paying down your balance, plus you had, the increase in value that uh, on the second piece where you buy it or you, sell, you sold it for more than what you bought it. So you've got a couple of, you've got some dollars coming out of this one that goes into your, your savings at that point? Yep. Okay. Exactly. That's right. All right. And is, does that become the land fund? That's like your, when I decided to do this again, that's where that money's going. Um, not at, no, not okay. at that time. It was just, um, you know, we, we just had a savings. It was kind of like the no touch savings. Gotcha. And granted, we have touched it for things, but it was that's pretty much what it was was the no touch savings. Okay. The long, I guess, long term savings is okay. what you'd call All right. that. All right. You got to think long and hard to, to clear the money out of that place or out of that account before you, you know, it's not, it's going to sit there until you have a very good reason to remove it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. So, so then what? So then um, my wife and I wanted to build a house and building a house, um, is a really, really bad idea if you want to keep your savings really high. But we did it anyway. <laughs> so, um, but the recession hadn't come back yet. So um, I still, I've always kept my finger on the pulse. And there was an area in the town that we lived in, and I thought if that area ever gets developed, 
I want to buy a lot down there, over there, okay. not that far. So I drove down the street right as soon as it was put in, and there was a lot at the end of the street, kind of in a cul-de-sac area. And like I said, um, hadn't bounced back from the recession yet. And we bought the bought the lot that our house sits on today. And we bought it at at market price at that time was you know just you know market price. But then the uh, the housing market started coming back, and it's doing well right now. It took off in value, and I also I've always done more. I've always felt like I've had two jobs. You know, my, my schedule is very, very rigid. If you want to be a dad and still get ahead, you got to have a rigid schedule. Mm -hmm. And so I've always done at least a couple of things, me a couple of things as in my full-time job and then something extra. And so bought the lot that our house sits on and I decided, you know what, I'm going to general contract our house. Now I don't mean physically frame it, but I was the why well, was what you would call the builder of sure. it? Yep, the GC. You know, right. Yep, yeah. Handle all the um, inspections, and there's so much that goes into building a house, from floodplains to efficiencies to, you know, picking out fixtures and ceiling fans that people fight over. Mm -hmm. That's child's play. Right. It's just right. it's no big deal doing that stuff. Gotcha. All right. So you decide to build a house. Where is the the Where's the property at this point in your head as far as I need more hunting property to own? Is that in play? It's still in my head. And at this time, it took, uh, took me about five months to general contract the house. And so during that time, I was a zombie. And buying more land was not quite on my mind at that time. Okay. So um, got the house knocked out. And then the appraisal came back and was like, Oh my gosh, this was totally worth it <laughs> because I knew what I had into the house. Right. And then I saw what it appraised for and now, um, and the savings took a hit of course, mm -hmm. but you know, we get in the house and now we're back into building savings mode. Okay. Hard building savings mode, building savings back. And I was hunting a place on permission and gorgeous place. My uh, I, my friend owns it to the, right now that as we speak, but um, he didn't own it at the time. And so I loved it. It was beautiful. It was good hunting. And I talked to my wife. I'm like, hey, I'd like to buy that piece. You think we could figure out a way to buy it? Mm -hmm. So I hit the owner up, and he didn't want to sell it. So then a um, few months goes by, and I still loved the piece. I still love it to this day. And um, I was going to call him. I remember it was a Tuesday night. We're on a bike ride. I'm like, hey, you remember so-and-so? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm going to hit him up again, see if he'll sell it. And I kid you not, we came back from riding bikes with the family that day. Mm -hmm. I had a voicemail on my phone. Hey, Sean, this is so-and-so. Just give me a call when you get a chance. <laughs> I call him back. True story, Jay. True story. I call him back. He's like, hey, I think I'd like to sell you that property. <laughs> <laughs> And wow. yeah, it's awesome. I mean, one of God's blessings. Right. And so, um, and it, you know, it was kind of a, it was a bummer when he said no, but it, in hindsight, it's probably good because we still needed to save some money to figure out how to come up with a down payment. Right. But it's a heck of a lot better, right. Than just saying, ah, he'll never sell it to me. So, or 
not even having the conversation because you planted that seed. You you were a, you were a, a, a desirable buyer. Like you really wanted to own that property, and you just threw it out there, and it stuck in his head as if I do sell this property, he's going to be the first person I call. Yeah, for that opportunity. Yeah. yeah one one thing about life, you got to have a willingness to outwork others and a boldness to take that risk. And so, I mean, as long as you're nice about things mm-hmm. and not just out for yourself, people see through that. Right. You and I both know people see right through that. And I'm glad people see through that. But um, that's how that conversation went. And, you know, made a couple moves, made, like some adjustments, I guess. And uh, a couple short months later, bought it. So you now own? This was 80 acres. 80 acres of land mm-hmm. with the confidence, you, and you went in with the confidence because you owned a couple small pieces of ten acres. Yep, and that went didn't, in really, and that didn't really make much money on. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but it now now it gave me some confidence. I remember the first big deer I shot, and I'm just saying big relative term, whatever. That was a huge confidence booster. As in, oh my gosh, I can do this. Right. Same thing with the land. Oh my gosh, I can do this. Same thing with the cars. I can do this. And when when did you buy the eighty acres? That was in two thousand thirteen. Thirteen. Okay. Yeah, two thousand thirteen ish somewhere. It wasn't before two thousand thirteen. Okay. All right. So you've two thousand thirteen. You buy eighty acres. Same scenario where you have to put down twenty five percent and finance the rest, kind of thing. This we went through a bank here that they wanted thirty five percent down of appraised value. Okay. So not of purchase value, of appraised value. Right. And um, I had an idea what it was worth, and um, myself and the landowner talked a little bit, and we agreed on a price, and um, he sold to us at at a really nice price. I mean, he he didn't by any means give it away, but um, sold at a really nice price. And um, it happened to appraise for a little over what we bought it for. Okay. I think, you know, I just think, I really, I think what happened was there was a couple comps in the area that just drove up the appraisal price. It didn't necessarily make this one worth a ton more, but there was just a couple comps that happened to just sell high at the time. Yeah. Okay. And um, so we, it it more or less equated to probably um, still 25%, but the appraisal came back high enough that the bank still got their 35% of appraised value. Gotcha. Okay. All right. And that one, this one was more of a, okay, I'm going to work and improve and go at it with an intention of making this thing better, better for deer. Gotcha. All right. So, and this is from your training from the first two pieces of property. Now you say, okay, I'm going to, now I own a, a lot more acres. I'm going to do something even better with this for the purposes mm-hmm. of shooting big deer. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Exactly. So there was um, there was food plots. There was uh, some burning already there existing was, on the property. Or this is no. Okay. All right. Um, work work by me. Work by you. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and hired work. You know, I, I didn't have a tractor, and so I needed to pay somebody with a tractor to do some work and you know, cut some stuff down with chainsaw and 
um, deer pictures and income. The income was pretty poor at the time, and I, I could tell the income needed to come up. So instead of it being um, hay ground that the guy renting on, I, I didn't think he was paying enough. And so, so, um, so you're saying that there, there's income from the property. Yeah. It was about 50, 50 farm, 50 cover, 50 open. Okay. So you can make money owning this piece of property to help support the cost of owning it through, through haying or farming of some sort. Yeah. Offset the payment. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And so what I did was, um, ran an ad on Craigslist looking for a farmer. Um, it was in hay. And I wanted to get it into row crop. Row crop tends to pay better as long as it can be row cropped. Okay. And so I got it into a higher income producing um, row crop ground. Gotcha. gotcha. Plus it's better for late season deer hunting. Okay. All right. So when you bought this property, what was your strategy for timber management, uh, farming? Obviously you went and, and found a, a row cropper um, yep. at that point to increase revenue, but what was the, what was your idea for the rest of the property to make it a good hunting ground? Food plots, um, as in green, green plots. The main idea I had on this thing was green plots, a late season grain plot and run the heck out of cameras. Okay. Cause I want to know what's in the area, what's coming through at all times. Okay. I, I'm telling you it, one of the cheapest investments a guy can make into their property is, running lots of cameras and keeping a log of all the deer pictures. Okay. Cause once again, what you're doing is you're reducing risk for yourself and the future. Cause you're showing that yes, this area does have good deer. Gotcha. Did you have to do any timber management on the property as well? Not this one. This, this one was one. full of low quality timber, but okay. it was good bedding timber because it was cedars and hedge. Gotcha. Okay. So it's very thick, almost too thick. It was extremely thick. The deer bedded on it really well. Excellent. Um, There's a lot of turkeys and a lot of deer, just a high population in the area. So it, as far as timber or bedding, it was already good to go. Okay. And the, the row crops made an additional food source late season beyond your yep. food plots. Yep, exactly. And what a guy can do there is you can negotiate with your farmer ahead of time. Hey, I've got let's just say 40 acres here and this is what I'm wanting for rent, but I'm willing to cut the rent back to this amount. But if I cut it back to this amount, you have to leave me this much standing grain. Gotcha. And of course they want to farm it. I, I don't know why a farmer would turn that down because you're still making it advantageous for him right? because he's still going to make money on it. Um, and you just want to have some um, crop left back and that money that you don't get for having crop left back like corn probably looking at about four hundred dollars an acre for input okay but if you don't own the equipment then your input skyrockets so um you know you have to let's say you want to leave one acre and you're charging 150 dollars for rent so you take that 150 dollars off the rent plus you're gonna have to take 400 dollars off the rent because he's gonna have 400 dollars worth of input costs into putting that corn in right but it's still 550 dollars for an acre of corn is a lot cheaper than you can do it yourself and what you're doing is you're giving the deer a place to eat that's not on the neighbors. So right. that, that $550 investment that you're really not, you're just not taking that money in is worth way more than $550 benefit. Gotcha. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. And how did you go about hunting this property for the last five years? 
Um, I actually I didn't even own it five years. I don't own the property anymore. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, entry and exit, one, two of the stands were really hard to get in and out of. Just, uh, well, really hard to get in and out of if you're super anal about entry and exit. Right. <laughs> but, um, and then one of them was really easy to get in and out of. So the, uh, the hard ones to get in and out of, that was kind of like the all day sits. Or um, go in well before dawn and then who cares on the way out because your hunt is already over with. Right. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a good idea. It's just kind of the mindset you have to – if you're not going to hunt it all day, that's just kind of what right. you have to do if right. you plan on getting out. Gotcha. Okay. But that, that place had great deer on it, still has great deer on it. Shot a really nice 160-inch um, mainframe 8 on that. It had that uh, It had 170-inch 6x6 on it. it had another 160-inch 8 on it. It just uh, had a – deer that was 170 shot on the neighbors it was kind of a unicorn deer that had pictures of that deer on it it was a really good mm. deer place okay and were you bow hunting or or gun hunting just bow hunting, bow hunting. i do i do late season muzzleloader hunt okay. i have in the past few years but that was pretty much just bow hunting okay it's kind of different when you own property um you kind of hunt it different than when you hunt on permission right i would imagine that that would be the case how did you find yourself hunting differently on the property that you owned versus the one you didn't? Well, because your deer, you, you don't really want to run them off. And it's not so much that you, at least myself, you know, I'm happy if my neighbor shoots a good deer. But you definitely don't want to run off a young deer that has potential. And that's that's always in the back of your mind. And the deer, the deer aren't pets. I get that they're not pets. I mean, they're, they're wild animals. But when you when you own something... You want to make it as most highly enjoyable for the wildlife. You know, people people kind of bash tree huggers, and I'm not quote unquote a tree hugger. But if you look at how I go about habitat things, I kind of am a tree hugger because I know I want to make habitat phenomenal and great and good for wildlife and good for the trees and increase the value of the trees by doing TSI. Um, so it. Um, I don't, that doesn't really answer your question, but how I went about hunting it was very carefully still how I go about hunting to this day. Okay. All right. And what about uh, scent control, gear setup, clothing, boots, all that stuff? How, what was your approach? Um, always showering before, like one stand that I had, for instance, I'd walk all the way across the crop field or when I hunted on permission, it was alfalfa field. I walk all the way across it. So what I would do is when I, when I get there, I would, um, the only thing that I wear to the stand that I'm also wearing in my truck is mm-hmm. my boxers, my okay. boxers and socks. That's the only thing that I still am wearing when sure. I get in the stand. Sure. So get there, change to all my hunting clothes. And then what I needed to do to get in that stand in the morning is I had to walk all the way across the South Alpha field. So I'd pull up in the field drive and I'd blow out all the deer with my truck just by turning around in the field drive. Yeah. And then I would turn around quick. I'd drive down the hill, I'd throw it in park and I'd hop out and I'd boogie to the stand. Gotcha. All right. All right. Because those deer were already out of, I'd push them out of the field with a truck and that doesn't really, I mean, you're not blaring the horn and, you know, shooting your six shooter in the air. Right. But they're just kind of pushing them off. Yeah. They, but they'll, they'll, they'll transfer their location, uh, temporarily. Yeah. And they tolerate it a lot better. They tolerate it and then freeze you up to get in without, uh, making them aware of what's happening. Exactly. And that's how, um, the last buck that I shot on that property, 
that is exactly how I went about um, getting in getting in that stand. And so scent control is always um, is always at the forefront of our our deer hunting mind, and it's no different for me. Okay, all right, very cool. Now you unloaded that property, mm-hmm. and how long did uh, you, yeah? How long did you own it? Not very long. Not even not even a year. Okay. And uh, but that was not the intention. Okay. At all. Okay. I mean, that intention on that property was to keep it for um, for quite a while. What ended up happening was I found a property on the other side of the county, still in a good area, and then um, I wanted to I wanted to buy it, and so I decided, well, there's only one way that's going to happen. Hmm. Decided that well, this one's going to have to get sold. Ended up um, selling it to a, a friend of mine, and um, made made a solid amount of money on it. But he still he got a good deal on it too, and um, he could probably sell a thing for more than what I made on it. But um, in the meantime, as the property, I, I call on this property that I found out through the grapevine that could be bought. Call the guy. He's like, "Yeah, it can be bought at this price." And I'm like, "Okay, so." Then I'm like, don't do anything with it. If you don't hear from me and you find somebody to buy it, call me. Mm. So a couple weeks go by and get a purchase agreement on the 80 acres. And I call him back and he goes, oh, I just got a, I just signed a purchase agreement. Literally, this not even three weeks went by. True story. And call him back and he's like, oh, I just accepted purchase agreement on a couple days ago. And I'm like, Oh no! Right, you've got to be kidding me! And I've already got a signed purchase agreement on this one to sell it. I don't really want to go back on it. Right. So now it was frantic mode because I wanted to ten thirty one tax exchange, which, right. um, in simple terms, that just means deferring your taxes until you decide you're going to take all the profit right. and just put it put it in your own personal account. Right. Right. So set up a ten thirty one frantically look for a property and uh took time off work and a couple thousand miles on my truck (laughs) and um found one okay found one and i want to say found that one in 2000 2014 okay ish yeah it was it was about 2014 and that one was 280 acres wow so you've gone from 10 to 10 plus 13 Mm-hmm. To none to eighty to two eighty two eighty yep okay yeah and that one had to uh, that one hurt buying that one <laughs> <laughs> that one was pretty painful right right I'm sure the price oh. tag is going up at this point yeah substantially right but you know what it's always been an investment that I can hunt right that's always. I always think about that. This is an investment that I can hunt. It's my non-liquid savings account. Right, right. Gotcha. So, do you end up buying the two eighty? Yep, yep. Own it right now. Um, thinking about thinking about selling it. It's. I'm going to take a risk selling it though. It is so good hunting. It's okay. really good. Right. I mean, in the past past handful of years, one seventy four, one eighty, one eighty, and a one eighty three. Mm, it's good. It's good. Yeah, it's it's real good. So you're does does the 
does the workload increase as the acreage increases? Does the cost of carrying it increase uh, both in mortgage dollars and in uh, upkeep? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it does. I mean, just, just to have a farm, you have to, you know, you, you got to pay your property taxes and pay your mortgage and deal with the NRCS and FSA. And granted, you can, you could just let it sit there. There, there's as long as you paid your bills, you could just let it sit there. Okay. But that's just not how how I roll. Okay. And you know, d- I don't. I like to make things as good as they can be. Just like as humans, we want to be the best J God designed you to be. Right. I want to make this farm the best farm it can be. Right. And d- tell us what is it? N N N S N R C S. That's the local government. It's your county office it's natural resource conservation service okay Okay. so that's who you deal with if you're talking about um conservation reserve programs or um and then you're dealing with the fsa office which is farm service agency they're usually in the same building that's your local office when you're dealing with a crop plan like i'm putting in corn and these are going to be the waterways and i'm registering um I'm uh, letting you know that it's corn this year and it'll be beans next year. Cause what you're doing is you're creating a crop history. Mm. Cause if you want to put something in CRP, you have to have crop history. You can't just have a weed field and go to the local office and be like, Hey, you need to pay me to put this in CRP. It doesn't work that way. You have to have the crop history there okay. to show that you, you've been um, working the land and using the land for crops. Okay. And you want to have the crops there so you get into the CRP program. Yeah. And the CRP program is they pay you to not farm, as I understand. Yeah. They give you a cost share to plant it. And that's what I did with this farm is it was was cropped and I wanted to get it into CRP, but not all of it. Okay. Um, CRP income tends to be a little bit more than you can get out of rent, which some farmers don't like because it's more enticing to put into CRP than to let a farmer rent it. Right. But the contract is usually 10 or 15 years long. So then by the time you get to the end of the contract, typically the CRP rent is just a hair below what you could actually rent it for. Okay. So it, it usually ends up evening out. The nice thing about CRP is you get paid for your habitat right? rather than that habitat only being there five months a year and then coming out and now the habitat's gone. Gotcha. Okay. And were there other income, income revenue producing activities on the, that 280 beforehand or is this, or you're still in design? No, the only revenue on this farm was crop ground. Okay. So it's crop ground. Yep. So now that is not the case. Now it is um, CRP income Mm -hmm. and then the crop ground income is, uh, is really, it's pretty much non-existent because there's only, I want to say there's 18 acres there of croppable ground and farmer farms 16 of it. But um, what I do in lieu of rent is he has to leave me standing grain in lieu of rent and he can harvest the rest. Okay. So, after the 280 is CRP'd out, does the income, is it a loss every year? I guess is the question. Do you end up actually losing money to own the property 
or does it break even? Um, well, the CRP that has a substantial amount of that makes a big that takes a big cut out of the mortgage payment. Okay, but it does not cash roll itself. Okay, all right. Make- it still costs me money every month, but it does not fully cash roll itself. Okay, makes it easier to swallow, but it's not a hundred percent. Oh yeah, it makes it way easier to swallow because the CRP income is almost twenty eight thousand dollars. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So now, I'm t- since I'm telling you that it still doesn't cash roll itself, imagine what kind of loan that is. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So that's twenty, and that's twenty eight thousand a year in yep. CRP income. Okay. Yep. So you're looking at twenty. So it's, it's you get more than two thousand dollars a month. So your your mortgage, if you're still paying out, is going to be more than that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's very, you know, another one of those uh, uh, mortgage calculator things. And gr- if you want your payment to go down, mm-hmm. you just got to put down more money. Good point. Or right. find a smaller property. Right. But it's always locked in. But the value in the the, the house, or not the house, the, the land itself will ap- appreciate or depreciate based off of market conditions and will, will ride independently of how much you owe. Like they're not connected in any way. Right, exactly. The nice one of the most one of the biggest things I like about land is first of all, if you just let it sit there, you're still looking at let's just say a six percent, give or take a percent. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still looking at a six percent appreciation. It might be five, might be seven, just depending on the year. But you can also force appreciation by making it better. Right. And that's the that's probably one of the biggest ways you can get appreciation out of a land is this thing was it wasn't really what you'd call a deer farm you know it was a crop field it was a crop farm with about 110 acres of timber right you know since then um i have put crp in you can get different kinds of crp programs and this one um i think it was i could have 10 grass seeds per square foot so I spent extra money on Canlo switchgrass, Caven Rock switchgrass, Big Blue Stem, and Indian grass, which are all late season, late warm season grasses, mm. and those stand up better against snow. And they, it costs more money though, but it was cost shared. So the, you know the they'll give I don't remember what the cost share was. It was like seventy five percent of the seed to plant it. They paid for, but um, I went with a more expensive seed blend and worked with a seed company to give me a, a better seed blend. So it would be, it would stand up better in snow. So I had bedding in the winter, not just in the timber. Right. You know, I, I have a turnip plot. I have a grain plot. I have three clover plots. These are all things I've put in. Um, dozer work, you know, I have a buddy with a dozer. He's worked on the drive. He's worked on a Creek crossing. And these things all cost money, but, the net gain is there for every dollar you put in, in a property. It's kind of nice to think in the back of your head. I hope I'm getting, you know, a dollar 10 gain out of this dollar I'm spending or this hour I'm spending here, whatever your time may be worth. You consider it's worth, you're getting more gain out of it. Right. So now, you know, I um, did a recent TSI project because there's a slug of walnuts on there and there's quite a few oaks too. And that's comp twofold for one. It lets your crop trees, your high value trees grow twice as fast and the deer bedding and wildlife habitat that it creates is phenomenal. So this, this farm is nothing like what it was when I bought it. 
it's a, like a killer deer farm now. I mean, awesome with a ton of income and giant deer. Right. Right. Gotcha. So you're, you can, it sounds like as you learn your property and you learn what you can do with your property, you could make it even a higher revenue producing property than it once was when you first mm-hmm. bought it with proper planning. And the other thing that I, that kind of pops into my head is that if you were to own this property for a certain number of years, understanding that if there were no bubble and you had an average appreciation of 6% per year using the power of 72, which says that the value will double every so many years if you divide it by the interest rate that it receives. Yep. If you own this property 12 years, it would be worth twice what you paid for it in 12 years. Yeah. So, and think about it, if you pay the property off and let's say you pay it off in 15 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you have a stack of net worth sitting there. Right. Yep. So in 10, in 12 years, if you bought it for $250,000 worth $500,000 12 years later, mm-hmm. or if you bought it for half a million, it's worth a million dollars. It's an extra $500,000 in value. You can sell that, you know, have $500,000 that you can now roll into a, another property, for example. Right. That's exactly why the whole don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. Right. You know, people kind of, they stand, sometimes people stand proudly on, oh, I could have bought that property back in 1992 for $600 an acre. And now, you want to sell me that property for $3,000 an acre? Well, first of all, you can't argue with somebody that thinks like that. So you're just like, yep, that's right. You got it, buddy. <laughs> but you got to think about it. I mean, think of all the work you've done. Think about um, just the, the appreciation that it's gained on its own. And you know what? It's not, gonna, it's not going down any. People talk about, oh, I'm going to wait for property to come down a little bit. Well, that happened on commodity-driven ground. Right. That is a very feasible option. On deer hunting ground, really the only way, and it can happen, the only couple ways it's going to go down in price is if the deer get wiped out, mm-hmm. which can happen, so you got to be wise about where you buy, or a huge hit to the economy. Right. So as long as you buy right, you don't have to typically worry about that. If you're paying twice market value, then the economy and the deer herd are going to make a huge difference if there's an impact there. Right. Gotcha. Fascinating story from just a, a, a dream when you're a kid to owning 280 acres of well-managed, huntable deer land today. Yeah, and anybody, anybody can do it. I am no, you know, I am absolutely no genius at all. Not even close. We could take an IQ test, and it's beyond likely <laughs> that many of your listeners are going to score higher than me on an IQ test. And I'm okay with that. Right. But what I will do is there's so many people out there that also have a work ethic. And I'm, I'm one of those guys that I might not have the best work ethic out of everybody, but I have a better work ethic than most. Right. I have a friend, he owns thousands of acres. You know, he didn't even buy a house before he bought his first farm. He lived in a studio apartment, owned a million dollar farm. <laughs> And he lived in a studio apartment. And this day, to this day, um, I think him and a couple brothers, they have about $3,000 or 3,000 acres of land. Phenomenal. And he's only a few years older than me. Right. That's awesome. It, it, it can be done. It's just a matter of, and I love helping people do it. I mean, it's just, right. it's, I'm, I'm, I'm crazy about land. That's cool. What a great, great blueprint to, to make this happen for yourself. Right. Yeah, and this is coming from a shower after work guy. You know, there's there's two kinds of jobs, not white collar and blue collar. 
there's the shower before work job and there's a shower after work job. That's a good point, man. That's a good point. I think we've got a lot of listeners that are the shower after work kind of guys and gals. Yeah, so. and they can do it. Right. And, and it's fun. You know what? That's another thing. You can force appreciation and it's fun. You know, paper investments, although they've done really well, like the S&P, what did it do this past in 2017? Did it do 22, 24%? Phenomenal investment phenomenal right. and it's awesome getting those sheets in the mail seeing what you got but it's not as fun as deer hunting <laughs> <laughs> very true very true all right sean you gotta tell us a, a, a deer story from one of your pieces of property and let us know how it went in detail so we can kind of live it too i was okay the current farm that i own i was hunting it was november 9th i i remember rut days like the back of my hand so it's november 9th i was sitting up by the cabin in a stand and i could see across the farm and there was a bunch of deer running over across this farm across the farm in this area and i said you know what? i gotta get out of the stand but in order for me to get out of the stand i gotta hop out walk a half mile plus gosh it was pr- at least four it's probably three-fourths of a mile back to my truck and go and get in this other stand so i go back I boogie back to my truck, hop my truck, go and drive um, through the gate to the other end of the farm. And uh, I'm on my way. And it's another half mile back to the stand I want to get back to. So I'm walking back there and I look across and I got my camera with me, um, like picture, t- you know, uh, not trail camera, not phone camera, but like a nicer high zoom camera. And I look across the, uh, it's where the, the creek runs. And on the other hill, there's a deer that I, that I was in there to shoot. I just, I called him the mess. He literally looked like a the mess, mess of, nice. yeah, he was a mess of antlers. There's just points everywhere. I think he had 22 scorable points, but, um, I look across and there he stands with a doe about a half a mile from me. Hmm. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So I'm like, well, I'm here. I got the day off. going to go and hunt anyway. So I go and I, I crawl in the stand and I'm on my phone so much, things darn near dead because I'm so bored. And uh, the deer were coming by, but not, I had my eye on one deer in particular, and that was him. And I knew I had bumped him off, so I didn't really think that I was going to get a crack at him. And um, there's hardly any breeze. I needed a south breeze. There's hardly any breeze. I'm starting to get hot. So by this time, I have, I'm sitting in a short sleeve shirt, no gloves on, no face mask on, baseball cap, and I got white and purple socks sitting on my foot rest of my stand because my feet are so hot but i've refused to get out of the stand <laughs> so at one and i ended up shutting my phone off because i almost ran the battery out and it was about 1 45 in the afternoon i had a doe come by and i'm kind of dozing in and out i had doe come by and i'm like oh boy there's a doe mm. and she's right in front of me so i sit really still and i slide my feet back behind my uh my knee boots mm-hmm. so i don't have this big white purple feet sticking out there and uh i look behind her i kid you not the mess is right behind her gotcha i'm like oh my gosh i tip my head down so my bill is kind of covering my face and i draw back and uh he comes in front of me and i stick him and it, i mean keep in mind i had a buddy bugging me to get out of the stand let's go for lunch let's go for lunch because he was having a slow day too and um i'm like no i'm not getting out i'm not getting out and I stick him and he goes running up the hill and he tips over and uh, he was a beast, man. He was had six and six eighth inch bases. I think he had 43 inches of mass. Um, 
And that was at 1.45 in the afternoon, November 9th. I could, it took everything I had to load that deer in the back of my truck. It took me multiple tries. And I, uh, I work out every day. I mean, I like lift weights. Yeah. And I, I don't mean like cardio lift weights like my wife does. I'm talking like, you know, I lift heavy weight kind of guy. Right. And uh, it was a brute. Had 31-inch neck. It was a, it was a big deer. That was and I almost got out of the stand to go for lunch, and I almost screwed up being half naked in my tree, thinking the day was shot. Right. Wow. The mess. Yep. The mess. The beast. Awesome. Yeah. Great story, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was. It was a fun hunt. All right. Let me uh, let me hit you with ten rapid fire questions here. Yeah. Shoot. All right. What's your number one hunting tip of all time? Think. I. That's probably the biggest thing I used to screw up on. Is just. You know, do hunt with intention. Hunt like you mean it. Right. right. I, I try to go in there and make every minute the best. Run like you know, run the crap out of cameras and and uh, do it with intent. Nice, nice. All right, we all have these things that kind of drive us crazy if we don't have it with us during the hunt. What's that one thing for you? <laughs> my phone. Your phone. It's my. It's because it's my watch. Right. It's my watch and it's my contact if my wife needs anything. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah, communication <laughs> device is a safety device. But also right. tells you when the sun's going down. Right. Um, what's your biggest pet peeve in life? Excuses. Mm, I like that. Hands down excuses. Love that one. How old are you today? Uh, what is the date today, by the way? Today, well, it's the 28th. Uh, I turned 37 two days ago. Okay. All right. So you're 37 years old. What would you tell the 16 year old, Sean, knowing what you know today about life? You can do it. Try harder. Okay. You can do it. All right. You're, you meet a stranger at a hunting convention somewhere in the world and they ask you what you do for a living. What do you tell them? I sell dirt and I work for a utility company. I, I have my real estate license. I, I sell farms. So nice. Um, I, I help people buy them too. Gotcha. Very cool. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, power food. Three eggs over easy, salt and pepper, and a cup of tea. Beautiful. I like it. Uh, yeah, no carbs, man. No carbs. No carbs. <laughs> you, uh, you get a billboard on the side of the highway. It's a blank canvas. It can say anything you want. What would you put on it? As cheesy as it sounds, I would put on it, you are loved. There's so many people out there with poor attitudes and don't think very highly of themselves. Don't think they can do it. Don't think anybody cares about them. That's not true. Nice. You are loved. Very cool. If I say the word successful to you, who's the first person that pops into your head and why? Mm, multiple people. Um, friend of mine, Bill, he's a broker. Another friend of mine, Bill, he's in the industry, um, deer hunting industry. A friend of mine, Charles, he's the one that has studio apartment mm -hmm. with his brothers. You know, I... I don't know it all, but I can find somebody with the answer, and those are my mentors. Nice. What's a day in your life look like? Very rigid. I'm a schedule freak. My wife's even worse than me. I wake up about 6 o'clock, um, and first thing I do is I cook my eggs and get my cup of tea warmed up, sit down, say my prayer for the day, mm -hmm. and uh, work on emails for, my, uh, for real estate, and then I go to a nine to five. Well, then my kids get up, get them breakfast and tell them goodbye, head out the door, do my nine to five, work out for an hour every day over lunch, check more emails, get back on text, come home, 
get home about five. Family time from five until about eight, eight thirty. And then about that time, I'm back on my laptop doing more real estate stuff until about 11, hop in the shower, read, go to bed, back up at six. Very cool. All right. And then finally, the last of the 10 questions, what's a deer hunting day in your life look like? <laughs> That's rigid too. I wake up about, <laughs> I wake up about three thirty, four o'clock, hop in the shower, scrub down, wolf down some food. During, during deer season, it's eat whatever I want time. I starve myself from carbs at pretty much any time except for deer season. Mm-hmm. And um, if it's, a, if it's an, a dawn dark, I'll get in the stand about 15 minutes before shooting time. I uh, will hunt all day. And now I've gotten smart and gotten one of those little chargers you can buy on Amazon for your phone. Yeah, sure. So I have one of those and take a little bit of food with me and a diet Mountain Dew in the stand, get out, drive home. Uh, most of the time I get home before my kids go to bed, hang out with the kids for a while and, um, do it again the next day. Dawn to darks are pretty common for me during the rut. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. Those are the 10 rapid fire questions. Uh, Sean, awesome. I, I gotta say, man, it's been very enlightening and an interesting story of, of, uh, that I think anybody can do based off of where you came from and what you worked hard to achieve and. I think anybody I think so too. Anybody can own their own piece of property when it comes down to it. Yes, you can. You you got to start somewhere. You know, the poorest plan executed in a haphazard manner is still a hundred times better than the best plan never executed. Right. Words of wisdom, right there. Very nice. Yeah. So let's say, for example, we didn't cover enough in our hour and. A half that we just, we spoke about owning deer property. Uh, yeah. What if there are other questions that come out of this and people have uh, need more answers? Where can we find you? I love helping people. Um, IowaLandMan.com. Iowa spelled out Landman.com or Sean S E A N at IowaLandMan.com. Very cool, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and stepping in the studios here and uh, and filling us full of great knowledge that I think lots of other people will be contemplating now that they've heard this show. Jay, I have to tell you, it was the pleasure was all mine. I really appreciate it. It was great. It was a lot of fun talking to you. I appreciate Sean Asada stopping by the studios to fill us in on his journey that he's been on, buying his own piece of hunting heaven on a shoestring budget. Definitely takes financial discipline, a plan, dedication, but as you can see, Sean did it. So you could probably figure it out too if you follow his model. You could have some drive and, and be willing to sacrifice those, those little day-to-day things in order to have that one piece if you're living paycheck to paycheck. So I appreciate Sean once again for coming on the show. Dusty, do we have a Chubby Tines Tip of the Week? Yeah, Jay, I've got a Tip of the Week. The Chubby Tines Tip of the Week is sponsored by Morris's Sporting Goods. Firearms, use firearms, bows, use bows. Located at 85 Kentucky Falls Road in Hillsborough, New Hampshire. Give Jim a call at 603-464-3444, morrisessportinggoods.com. Your dollars go further in New Hampshire. There's no sales tax. Morris's Sporting Goods. Uh, getting into the shed season here, and uh, it's that time to be out there looking for them drop antlers. And I tell you, a lot of times uh, people are lazy. It's amazing 
that they just walk the trails and the open areas that uh, easy accessible. And I think that uh, you're going to broaden your your collection of antlers if you really take the time and dig into them thick woods and the thickets and them real heavy covered fields where you can walk through. And, you know, there's times where I've been down my hands and knees just to cut through a 10, 15 yard section to get to the other side. But you really got to play it as if, you know, a shed hunter's lazy. You, so you, you, you push yourself to get through them thick areas and, and dig into it, get down into thickets, get into that tall, uh, CRP fields that, that's real thick and it's not very good footing and, and it's a struggle to walk through that. That's where your best odds are, you know, not only public, but private also, uh, you got to really dig in and, and find them sheds. So you're saying it's going to get a little rugged, a little dirty. Oh yeah, you got to get down in there and dig for them. Got to, got to go where nobody else wants to go. Right, right. That's good. That's a good tip, Dusty. Where can we find you when you're not hanging out here in the studios with me? Uh, shoot me an email, Dusty at BigBuckRegistry.com. You can look me up on Instagram and Twitter at Chasing Antler, Facebook.com forward slash Chubby Tines Outdoors. Jay, where can the people reach out to you when you're not on the mic? Likewise, you can shoot me an email, j at bigbuckregistry.com, and you can visit us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Twitter, which is twitter.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. We're also on Instagram, instagram.com forward slash bigbuckregistry, and YouTube, which is youtube.com forward slash bigbuckregistry. On YouTube, you can listen to all of our podcasts in their entirety. As far as videos are concerned, it's a boring video, but the audio content is there, so you can actually listen to our podcast. You can also listen to all of our live shows that we've done on Thursday nights when we do do them, and we've gone back and interviewed, re-interviewed a lot of our previous guests we had on the show just to put a face to a voice. Let's put it that way. You can always listen to our show on other places as well, not just YouTube. We're found on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher and Blueberry. And if you would like to submit a buck to our page for consideration and be featured on our page in front of 250,000 diehard deer hunting fans, all you have to do is go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash my buck and all of the instructions will be right there. That's pretty much everywhere we're at. I think that's a wrap, Dusty. That's a whole lot of big buck, Jay. Sure is. I'm Jay Scott. I'm Dusty Phillips. And this is the Big Buck Registry's Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you.